Turn with me in your Bibles to Amos chapter 5. Amos chapter 5, we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 27. Amos 5, 18 through 27. Let's go ahead and open up uh, in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for your faithfulness. We pray that you would help, even as we just sung here, that uh, the words of Scripture would change us. Uh, We know that you have already promised in your word that your word will not return void. And so we pray that you might do the um, sanctifying work that you do through the Holy Spirit in our hearts with the text of Scripture. We pray that you would accomplish that today in Christ's name. Amen. From the very first pages of Scripture, the Lord has repeatedly condemned worship offered in pretense. One of the very first instances that we see this in the Bible is with Abel. You may recall in Genesis 4 and verse 4 that we read, The Lord had no regard for Abel and his offering. That is to say that Abel's worship was done in pretense. It was not sincere and genuine. And therefore, the Lord had no regard for this. And for a variety of motivations, mankind has repeatedly throughout history made the repetitive error of doing the right thing on the outside, but the wrong thing on the inside, or at least what looks like the right thing on the outside. Hypocrisy, therefore, does not come as much of a surprise to us anymore. Con artists have honed their skills in this area. One such example is a man who lived in the early 1900s by the name of Charles Ponzi. One article tells of his experience in this area. I'm going to read to you from this article. Ponzi told investors that he was able to take advantage of fluctuating currency values to purchase international postal reply coupons. These were postage vouchers that senders of a letter from one country could include to facilitate a reply from a recipient in another country. Ponzi claimed he could purchase the coupons abroad at a discount and then sell them at face value in the United States at a tremendous profit. Ponzi refused to provide details as to how precisely he operated his investment strategy, claiming he didn't want to give that information to competitors. Ponzi promised investors a 50% profit within 45 days and a 100% profit within 90 days. And from all appearances, Ponzi was a man of his word, as early investors were rewarded handsomely. Due to what appeared to be his phenomenal success, he soon had investors clamoring for him to take their money. The math, however, didn't work. Behind the scenes, Ponzi was only able to pay his investors using money from new investors, not profits. Ponzi was brought down due to a series of investigative reports in the Boston Post newspaper, which ultimately led to a federal criminal investigation resulting in mail fraud charges. Okay, now it goes without saying that we get uh, a term from Charles Ponzi, and that is the Ponzi scheme. Okay, he was not the first person to do this, but he is kind of most famously associated with this, and therefore his name carries on today uh, in in the Ponzi scheme. A Ponzi scheme is where investors do exactly, or it happens exactly as he uh, outlined it here, and that is. Uh, investors are promised a very uh, sweet reward or return on their investment. And in order to make this look legitimate, uh, the early investors are paid with the money that later investors give, and it gives the illusion that this is really uh, a good return on your investment, Um, and then it ends up all being a big scheme. We could consider countless examples time and time again of people being false. That is to say, people being one thing on the outside and something else on the inside. This is particularly loathsome to the Lord, as we know, who says in Revelation 3 to the Laodicean church, would that you were either hot or cold. (laughs) Pick one. (laughs) Don't try to be this middle thing. There's perhaps no clearer condemnation of this kind of hypocrisy than can be found in Matthew 23, 27 through 28, where our Lord says this, 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, there is a kind of test that one can perform here to see whether one is conforming their life to only the external ceremonial religion or whether they are engaging in true religion. And that is to see if one's religious adherence has any impact in one's life. And if we were to go just a few verses earlier in this Matthew passage to verse 23, we would see this litmus test. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that it's obvious to tell that you're a bunch of fakes because you are observing this one ceremonial part meticulously, but then in justice and mercy and righteousness, you're off by a hundred miles. And so that's very obvious to see that you are a fake. And in the same way, we see a similar standard in our passage today. Amos 5, beginning in verse 18, going down through verse 27, we read this. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? (laughs) It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikath, your king, and Kion, your star god, your images made, Uh, that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Amos begins this first section of verses here with a statement of woe to Israel. He simply says, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. Now here at the start of this passage, Uh, Amos begins by debunking a myth in Israel. And the myth that he debunks is that the day of the Lord would be a blessing for them. Amos debunks this by simply establishing the fact that the day of the Lord is actually going to be a day of dread, not a day of light. Like the ignorant cattle that walks into the slaughterhouse, so to Israel naively marches on toward judgment, thinking that the slaughterhouse is going to be something beneficial for them. You see, this misunderstanding or their misunderstanding of this day of the Lord was only a partial misunderstanding. It is true that the day of the Lord is going to be a day of vindication of the Lord against his enemies. Israel just wasn't being planned, planning on being counted among the Lord's enemies. They didn't realize that they were going to be counted on the wrong side of the equation. There are 19 mentions of the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, and there are four mentions of the day of the Lord in the New Testament. Now, there are numerous other references. There are references to that day and so on and so forth. But these are all of the ones that we will call the explicit mentions, the ones that explicitly use the phrase, the day of the Lord. Um, I want to read to you just a sampling 
of uh, some of these descriptions. If you were to go through all of these passages and read them, all of these quotes I'm about to read are from these 19 in the old and four in the new. Um, You will read things like this. It's described as destruction from the Almighty. It will come. Or cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and destroy its sinners from it. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. As destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Who can endure it? The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. These negative descriptions define the day of the Lord as a day of judgment. A day of terror and a day of recompense. And when it comes to the New Testament, what we find out is that the day of the Lord is still future. Just consider Paul writing to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 2, where he says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Hasn't come yet. Still future. Furthermore, We understand from Peter that the day of the Lord will not be something that you could just miss. Okay? This is not something that you're you're not going to say, I wonder if that was the day of the Lord. And I think this is one of the reasons why um, the preterist position is, um, we need to understand that, um, that, that this, I think, debunks that. 2 Peter 3.10 says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away uh, with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The day of the Lord, da 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 It is unmistakable that this is what this particular day is. Peter will then promise a few verses later that this burning up of the earth is to make way for a what? A new heaven and a new earth. There are two conclusions to make so far then about the day of the Lord. Conclusion number one, the day of the Lord is a day of judgment. It's number one. The second conclusion is that the day of the Lord is still future, even at this point now. Now, the question that we have to ask ourselves that everyone is asking is, when will this take place? And according to the passage that we just read, 2 Peter 3.10, the day of the Lord happens when heaven and earth is remade. We might say this is the end of the world, the remaking of the world into um, a new heaven and a new earth. There also is a statement in Revelation 6.17 that says the great day of the wrath has come. This is during the seven seal judgments during the tribulation. And because of this, John MacArthur says that the day of the Lord refers to two separate events. One, as he says, during the tribulation, uh, and then one referring to 2 Peter 3, verse 10, at the end of the world. Um, And whether you parse it out that way or not, um, one option is you could simply say that the day of the Lord kind of refers to the end time events. This whole sequence of things that happens at the end of the age. At any rate, the big thing to note here for the purposes of Amos, before we get too distracted from this, is that the day of the Lord is something to be feared. He specifically says, it is not light, it is darkness. And it is inescapable for God's enemies. I want to read to you this uh, next uh, couple of verses and just note kind of the, the, the metaphors that are used here to describe how inescapable the day of the Lord is. He says, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and the serpent bit him. Is, it, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light gloom with no brightness in it? Okay, so you, you can kind of uh, picture the irony here. You might recall, for example, how Saul failed to kill King Agag, like he was supposed to. Remember, remember this particular event, 1 Samuel 15? And King Agag is brought before Samuel now. Saul had failed to kill him. He brings the king before Samuel. And the text specifically says that Agag came before him cheerfully. He was 
And, and, and he specifically said this in 1 Samuel 15, surely the bitterness of death is past. In other words, Agag believed he finally had found safety. Yes, his enemies had won, but he had found a refuge to take uh, shelter in. And just in the moment of his security, he is, as the passage says Samuel does, he is hacked to pieces. Just when he had thought that he had found refuge, it's not there. In the same way, these two verses describe a person who thinks he's found security and safety. And so the first metaphor is running away from a lion. You could picture this scene, right? He, he runs away from the lion and he finally escapes and he's kind of got his, his hands down on his knees and he's huffing and he's puffing. <sighs> he's escaped and he's, you know, whew. and then all of a sudden he looks up and he makes direct eye contact with a bear. <laughs> he's done for, right? It's, that's what this text is. Just when you think you found safety and refuge, you're faced with your doom. Or the second illustration is a man runs into a house. He's running away from his enemies or whatever, and he gets into the house, and he looks around, and he's exhausted, and he's, okay, it's safe, and he just kind of, as he's catching his breath, puts his hand on the wall, and a snake bites him, a poisonous snake bites him, and he dies. Just when he thought he found refuge, it's taken away from him. And that illustration is used to describe what the day of the Lord is like. Someone thinks, finally, I found refuge, I found safety, and the Lord is there too. And the Lord is there, 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 and the Lord is there. And there's no escape from the wrath of the Lamb. That's what the day of the Lord is like. It is, therefore, as Amos tells us, a day of darkness and not of light. There will be no hiding place available. You may remember a couple chapters ago, we saw this when Amos said that the horns of the altar will be cut off. Remember that particular portion? That is to say, in the Old Testament, they would run to the altar and grab a hold of the horns, and that was to be their, their refuge. You can't kill me here, I'm safe here, and that was going to be gone. There's no hiding place. We might say it this way, out of the frying pan and into the fire. The grass is not always greener on the other side. And in our present case, Israel thought the grass was greener during the day of the Lord and come to find out it's actually even worse. Now what we have here in this next series of verses is we've seen a description of the day of the Lord. We've seen that it is a time of vindication of the Lord against his enemies. And we see that Israel, because of their sin, has placed themselves in the camp of God's enemies. And now we will see that there is a complete and total divine rejection of Israelite worship. We actually will also see a litmus test here to see what true worship ought to look like. And we read simply in verses 21 through 23, the Lord says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them, and the peace offerings of your fat and animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. I want to read to you some of the terms that we just read in these particular verses that the Lord describes Israelite worship with. I hate. I despise. I take no delight in. I will not accept them. I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise. I will not listen. This is a rather jolting couple of verses. You know, you're in the train car and suddenly it comes to a stop and, the, and all of a sudden, what's going on? <laughs> a couple of jolting verses here because it opens up for us a possibility that we may not have imagined could have existed. And that is this possibility that the text opens up for us. There is a kind of worship that God loves and there is a kind of worship that God hates. We can't take the default position of, well, 
worship, it must be, God must be pleased with me. I, the, I vocalized the lyrics to the song, and so God must look on me with favor. Now, what this text does actually is it, 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 is it, does, it opens the possibility there's a worship that God loves and God hates, but it opens up an even more subtle possibility that perhaps offers us a more abrupt jolt, and that is this. Included inside the types of worship that God hates under that umbrella, you have an umbrella, this, God loves this worship, God hates this worship. Inside of this, under this umbrella, in this group, one of the kinds of worship that God hates is the kind of worship that follows his prescription ceremonially to a T. I'm doing everything right. I'm singing worship songs that have good sound doctrine. I'm reading scripture. I'm doing all these kinds of things. I'm engaged in worship. The possibility, the subtle possibility could exist that there is something inside of that kind of worship that God would hate. In other words, you can do everything right on the outside while having everything wrong on the inside, and God will not let that go unnoticed. I mean, imagine hearing these words leveled against, just, just try to bring it home, against our church worship service. Imagine the Lord commenting on our singing and saying, take away from me the noise of your songs. <sighs> this would be a devastating blow. The reason for such a harsh take on Israelite worship is because the worship exists only in the external forms, the ceremonies, the rituals, and the liturgies. The worship does not proceed from the heart. Now I'm going to say one thing here because I don't want to get distracted from the text. But I do want to say one very, 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 very important thing that cannot, must not be missed. And I hope that nobody misses this particular point. This passage cannot be used to argue for relativistic worship. Let me explain what I mean by this. This passage will not permit you to make this conclusion. However, I worship is irrelevant. All that matters is where my, my heart is. Uh, obviously, God is upset with their external ritualism, and so what that means is that all that matters is my heart, and, and uh, I can worship however I want to. Well, that would indicate that there's a different problem with your heart. I mean, it'd be a different problem, but it's a problem nonetheless. With that being said, it is important to make this conclusion. God wants both. He wants both. If you don't believe that, I have a little story about two people named Nadab and Abihu. Okay, in the Bible. And when they did, when they worshiped the Lord in a manner unprescribed by the Lord, he sent fire and consumed them in an instant. Okay? You may recall a story of Ananias and Sapphira. Okay? What we understand is that the Lord wants both the internal heart disposition and the external manifestation of that internal heart disposition, okay? I talked a little bit about this relationship in another application in the podcast this last week, and that is that the inside and the outside are supposed to match. There is a very common conception today where people say that the, all that counts is the inside and the outside can be whatever you want it to be. That's problematic, and God wants both. In fact, the outside will always flow from the inside, and so if you do have what's right on the inside, 
it will not want to manifest itself (laughs) in ways that God has not given to us. Now, in the present case, what they had was they had the outside, the forms of it, but not the inside. And there are many, many passages that refute this, and I'm going to give to you a handful of them. 1 Samuel 15. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Of course, talking to Saul. Okay, So the Lord says, I, you, you sacrificed Saul but you didn't obey. I would have rather had you to obey. Putting a priority here in worship. Hosea 6 in verse 6, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Psalm 51, 16 through 17, for, I will, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are what? Broken spirit, broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Isaiah 29, 13, the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and the fear of me is a commandment taught by men. We see this quoted in Matthew 15, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Okay, we see these kinds of quote-unquote worship. It is a quote-unquote worship where you say all the right words and you do all the right things and all of that stuff in the external form of it all, but their hearts are far from the Lord. Another way to say this is that we must be reminded that we are not here to play church today. Uh, If we are here to play church, then let's all go home. Okay, I'm, I'm sure... There's something you could be doing right now. But we're not here to play church. We're here to worship the sovereign triune God of the universe. And we are to worship this God both on the inside and on the outside with the whole being. Now the litmus test for this, our worship has to be genuine. The, the litmus test for this is given to us in, verse, in chapter 5 verse 24 where we read, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Now, it may be that Amos 5.24 is the most well-known verse in all of Amos. If anyone were to quote a verse from Amos, it would probably be this one. This verse is where we go in order to demonstrate that Amos is largely about justice and the seriousness of, of, of what happens when you deprive people of justice as these people were doing. But what, one of the things that we emphasize in our opening message on Amos, and one of the things that we must emphasize here, is that this verse cannot be divorced from right and proper worship. Okay? There are some people who would go to Amos and extract this verse perform a little bit of surgery in the Bible with a scalpel and remove this particular verse and all the verses about justice and lift them up out of their contexts and emphasize that Amos is only about the importance of right ethics, of right justice. And of course it is about that, but it is not about that independent of right worship. They go together. In fact, you need right worship to have right ethics. Um, There are many Christians and um, parachurch organizations today who believe that the strategy in order to reach the world is to do this, is to take a scalpel and to perform surgery in the Bible and to extract all of the imperatives and the ethics and the morals and the justice and leave behind all of the quote-unquote spiritual and the worship and the biblical and all that and say they don't believe all of this, but we can at least take them these parts. You, You have undermined ethics in your failed attempt to exalt ethics because... Worship has to be the foundation. Theology has to be the foundation. That's unmistakable. 
in Amos because we just read about right worship. And immediately the next verse is the verse on justice. It is, if, it is as if the Lord were saying in this particular verse, it's easy for anyone to see that your worship is wrong because you are peddlers of injustice. Like the con artist, you are fake on the inside even though the outside looks nice. We are called therefore to demonstrate that our worship is true through our good works. In the present case of Amos, it is to demonstrate that their worship is true through a rejection of injustice and an embracing of justice. They were to let justice roll down like waters. That is to say they were to flood the world with justice. And this would demonstrate that what was going on in your heart in worship was true. But because there was no justice, because they were oppressing people and building their wealth on top of people through unjust law courts and so on and so forth, because they were doing all this stuff, that evidenced that the heart was dead and therefore the worship was dead. And it made God hate the worship all the more. You're pretending to be something that you're not. Now, we have a New Testament parallel to this, and that is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. And I know we frequently memorize 8 to 9, but I'm going to throw verse 10 in there to show how all this fits together. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are not saved by a Christian ethic. But we are saved for a Christian ethic. That's what Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says. We are created for good works. This is where antinomianism totally misses the mark. Antinomianism says, because of God's grace, my behavior is irrelevant. And I will continue to emphasize this, and this is not unique to me, but someone has once said, good works are a part of salvation. It's just that they have to be on the right side of the ledger. Not, there's the side of the ledger that's the causes of my salvation and the side of the ledger that's the effects of my salvation. It is not on the cause side. We must maintain the significance and the centrality of justification by faith alone for our salvation. We must also recognize that God cares about our obedience. Don't put the cart before the horse. Don't say the obedience gets me into the kingdom, but that it is a litmus test. It is an effect. It is a result. And that's what's going on in Amos. Let the justice roll down like waters. Let your righteousness be like a stream. Where did it all go? <laughs> this is, a, this is the, the effect is such that there's a dead heart. We too are to seek a kind of justice that rolls down like waters. We are to seek righteousness that is uh, an ever-flowing stream. Now the pattern to this, let me, before the conclusion, get into a little bit of slight application here. And that is, I want to make an observation, and that is in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, the pattern is that evangelism starts in Jerusalem, then it goes to Judea, then it goes to Samaria, and then it goes to the end of the earth, meaning that evangelism starts in your immediate circle. Okay, This is something that is frequently mentioned to people who want to become missionaries. 
You know, someone says, man, I would love to go to Bolivia or wherever, I don't know, some place and be a missionary and I would serve the Lord there with, with gladness. And you say, you're not serving the Lord in your own church right now. <laughs> what makes you think, start where you are at in the circle that God has put you in, the smallest circle. This same pattern is not only found in Acts 1.8, it is found in 1 Timothy 3, where we see that before a man is able to manage a church, he has to be able to manage his own home. That is to say, you start with the circle smallest and closest to you, and then your impact goes beyond that. In both situations, Acts 1.8, 1 Timothy 3, influence begins in the smallest circle. The general pattern of our society is to reverse this. Society's desire and goal is to reverse this. Now, social media has made this exponential. But just think of Hollywood celebrities, for example. Hollywood celebrities frequently seek to begin their influence in the largest circle. Right? Not all, but many of their marriages are in shambles. Kids in jail and on drugs, living lives of promiscuity. Everything in the closest circle has fallen apart. But there's a desire to, at a minimum, this should make us wonder why anyone looks to Hollywood celebrities for any sort of moral or ethical guidance. Um... Why that is the case, I do not know. But more to the point, we have to resist the urge to begin our influence in the largest circle while neglecting the smallest circle. Not everybody will have a large circle of influence, but everybody will have a small circle of influence. So start there. I'm trying to apply this fact that we're supposed to let justice come down. Okay? I can't have... I have no power in the law courts. I have no power here. I have no power there. Fine. Have justice in the smallest circles of your life first. Not everybody will have a large circle of influence. Everyone will have a small circle of influence. And if God grants you the next tier, then go there. And if he grants you the next tier, then go there. But if we're talking about justice rolling down like waters, let's begin in our homes and teach our kids what justice looks like. How about we start there? That's stop number one. Then let's go to our neighbors, our friends, and our city. Now, I'm just going to briefly mention, uh, because this theme comes up again and again in Amos, we've mentioned a number of practical, uh, what are some injustices in our society. And some of these are things that we feel like we don't have the ability to, to... Attack, some of them are, but you have things like sex trafficking, the porn industry. We did look at how the porn industry fuels the sex trafficking industry, by the way. Uh, abortion, welfare state, the dictator father, the passive father. And I want to hone in on this last one for just a moment here and just make this comment. We're talking about bringing justice. Let justice roll down. And I will say that, and and this goes a little bit with the men's study that we just started, the father has a unique position in the home for good or ill. Absent father homes produce a significant amount of injustice in our world. I'm going to read to you some statistics. Children from fatherless homes account for 63% of youth suicides, 71% of pregnant teenagers, 90% of all homeless and runaway children, 70% of juveniles in state-operated institutions, 85% of all youth who exhibit behavior disorders, 80% of rapists motivated with displaced anger, 71% of all high school dropouts, 75% of all adolescents in chemical abuse centers, and 85% of all youths sitting in prison. Now, it could be partially for these reasons that Paul says fathers who do not provide for their own families 
are in 1 Timothy chapter 5 worse than unbelievers. A father who says, I am not going to provide for my family. This is, this, and I think we're talking about more than just um, material provision. Fathers have a load to provide for their families in many more ways than that, spiritually and um, emotionally and so on and so forth. Fathers are like um, someone said one time that your home, fathers, is not your crash pad. Um, It's not your castle. Your home, fathers, is a greenhouse where you are cultivating, watering, nurturing spiritual plants. And when fathers become passive and don't do those things, it creates all sorts of problems that do not remain in the home, that trickle out into society. A father who does not provide, or an absent father, sends shockwaves through his family that results in problems for generations, literally. Generation upon generation upon generation. Here's all I'm saying. How do, how do we apply some of this stuff that we're talking about? How, how, can I, I, how can I help justice to come down? Start in the very smallest circle and just point your family to Christ or your friends to Christ or wherever you are. It could be that one application from today's passage is simply to invest in one family who needs Christ to give them the gospel and then help equip them to invest in their children. That is one way to apply this in a small circle. That is the litmus test. Are you seeking justice and righteousness? Finally, in the last three verses, we have a final condemnation. We read this in 25 through 27. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness of house of Israel? You shall take up Sikoth, your king, and Kion, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is Lord of hosts. The meaning of verse 25 is a little bit debated. Um, there are a couple different thoughts on this verse, whether it should be rendered as a question or not. But it likely means something like this. You didn't only bring me sacrifices and offerings, right? <laughs> you had to have hearts that loved me too, didn't you? <laughs> Isn't that the arrangement from the beginning? <laughs> Why do you somehow think now that I'm just satisfied with the ceremonial aspects only? Has it not always been? Has it not always been <laughs> that I wanted the whole person Heart, soul, mind, strength, behavior, actions, thoughts, desires, all of that. It's always been the case. It reinforces the idea for pure worship. At the end of the day, though, God will send these people, Israel, into exile, even with their star gods and all the images they have made for themselves. He would send them beyond Damascus, which would eventually happen during the Assyrian exile. One commentator makes a remarkably astute observation here. And he says this. He says, The gods of Assyria occupied the hearts of Israel long before the armies of Assyria occupied its streets and towns. Let that not be said of us. Many of us look out at the news and we look at the world and we say, this is being flushed down the drain at an exponential rate. And it is. Open your eyes and look at where our world is going. We say we resist all of this, we resist the dark. Could it that some of the things that the world is offering we have already internalized into our own hearts. Let it not be that the gods of Assyria occupy our hearts 
long before the armies of Assyria occupy our streets and towns or whatever calamity may come in the future. So where do we go from here? Well, for starters, this text is an emphasis we know on what? We were to highlight what this text is about. It is about pure and genuine worship. When you come here to church, you are not to be a hypocrite, but your worship of the Lord ought to proceed from a heart that already is worshiping him. This text is also about how you can know whether your worship is genuine. And one of the ways to know that is by observing its effects in your life. Israel's worshiping on the outside, doing all the right things. And they walk out of church on Sunday morning. And then they go and they engage in extortion and all of these kinds of things. Worship must not be genuine. We have to ask ourselves whether there is any change in our lives. Does your life look different than your unbelieving neighbors and co-workers? Or do you tell the same kinds of jokes as they tell? And if someone were to come in, would there be any difference? Would they see something was distinct in your behavior? Are you pursuing justice or injustice? Are you growing in your love for Christ? Are you growing in your role as a husband, as a wife, a father, a mother, a child, or whatever? Are you growing in your hatred for the sin in your own life? Or are you becoming more comfortable? Has the, was, was the sin in your life kind of this unwanted guest? And then it comes as maybe an annoyance, and then it's this, and then it's this, and then you're just relaxing on the couch together. What is your relationship with the sin in your life like? If I followed you around every day. All right, we're starting an assignment today. I'm going to follow one at a time you all around for a month. I'm going to be with you at work. I'm just going to, what? would there be a noticeable distinction in your life? I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do that. (laughs) If there is no distinction, if there's no difference, there's no love for Christ, there's no love for what God has given to you, the roles and the responsibilities and all of that stuff, If, if, if you're dead, could you then be walking on thin ice? Could it be that when you come here on Sunday morning, the Lord is saying of you, take away from me the noise of your songs. Take it away. I hate it. Instead of this, we are to let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This is to say that your life is to be one where righteousness is flowing from you constantly like a stream that just never ends you are constantly doing righteous things you're constantly loving others you're constantly doing good for others you're constantly being kind and all of these kinds of things that we know that are so basic to the christian life let there be no end to the righteous lifestyle that you lead Now, I want to give you two applications from the text today, and these two applications are going to be broad. I've already worked through some of the particulars a few minutes ago, um, and, and we can work some of these out as well. But just very broadly speaking, the text today gives to us two main applications. We are to pursue right worship, and we are to pursue right behavior. Both are taught here in the text, so we are to... Stop it with the external worship where you just sing songs for the sake of singing, to stop playing church, and to let your song and your worship and all that be genuine, flowing from a pure heart. And we are also to stop with the improper behavior. Stop it with the 
Ponzi schemes. That is to say, being someone on the outside that you're not. We are to pursue justice. We are to be a father, a mother, or what we've been called to be. Now, all of these things, I know, could potentially be misinterpreted. And so I want to give to you just one corrective here today, and that is this. What I am not saying is that you are to pick yourselves up by your bootstraps with your own strength and go and do what's right. To make that claim would be to miss the gospel in its entirety. It would be to miss the gospel but it would be to be on a different planet than the gospel is on. <laughs> None of us here can say that our lives match up. Anyone want to volunteer for that? <laughs> no, no, no one. Let me just encourage you, maybe one corrective here. We're talking about hypocrisy today, hypocrisy in worship. Some might make the conclusion, well, therefore, until I can totally fix the inside of myself, I'm just not going to do the outside so that I am not a hypocrite. I don't think that's what the text is telling us either. There is a difference between coming to worship and worshiping on the outside and saying, everything's great. There's a difference between that and saying, I'm wrestling the person who says, I'm, the person who says, yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I need to repent. Yes, my heart is not always in it. But I want to do this because I, I, there's something in me that loves the Lord. That's not hypocrisy. That's not hypocrisy. Um, to acknowledge your own sinfulness. But we have to acknowledge also that we need Christ for this. John 15, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. And so we need Christ to pursue right worship. We need Christ to pursue right behavior. We need to run to him because he provides us with the grace to be able to do everything the text has told us today. Thank you, God, for your grace to us in the gospel. We thank you that you have given to us your grace so that we can pursue right behavior. We could not do this in our own strength. Help our worship to be genuine as the passage in front of us has reminded us today. Let us be those that promote justice as we saw last week, in the gate, that is to say in our communities. Help us to start with the uh, sphere of influence that is closest to us, our families and our neighbors and our community, and to fight for justice there in terms of pointing people to Christ and the gospel, that you'd help us to uh, see your will be done in these areas. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.